the future will be where feeding systems are all going to generate the content automatically and dynamically. It's not going to be where we actually have to make one ad units at a time. And the reason that we're moving to this is those platforms are all smart learning. It's machine learning. They learn a lot more, but you always have to give it content. Content is the biggest thing right now, but content doesn't work if you have to constantly manually produce them. So those platforms are all going into what's called a feed of all the creative. Not every day that a car salesperson becomes the founder and CEO of a SaaS company that is revolutionizing the way companies do local advertising. But that's the path that Diana Lee followed. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, we went through the whole story and dug into how her company, Constellation Agency, built an internal technology that helped her marketers stop crying, literally, because it was so hard to create hyper-local advertising. And then came the evolution into a SaaS company. We also dove into how to think about capturing data in a world without cookies. And we discussed why, if you're going to be in the market for a car in the next year, you definitely need to be ordering one right now. Enjoy the episode. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnextincommerce. All right, on to the show. Hello, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, I have Diana Lee, who serves as the CEO and co-founder of Constellation Agency. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, I cannot wait to dive into your current company, but especially your background. So I was looking through your credentials and I was like, well, this woman, she knows what she's doing. I started reading a bit about your story around, you know, starting back at the car dealership days back in college. And I want to actually start there, kind of like how you even got into the business world and what you were doing at car dealerships back in the day. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. So at 18 years old, uh, which is a long time ago, I was going to college. And at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But how I, I led from a journey of going to a car dealership was because in my freshman year, 
I decided that I needed a job because my parents were immigrants. We immigrated here in 1974 and they didn't really have a lot of money. I was just trying to prevent them from having to pay for my tuition, my room, my board. I looked at the local paper and saw that there was a job at a car dealership for a greeter. And so I applied for the position. I get the position. And then two weeks later, they said, oh, we don't need greeters anymore. We need salespeople. So you're a salesperson. So immediately I get thrown into the showroom and you know, it was an a, amazing experience during the summer because it was not something that I could ever predict that I could be good at, but it forced me to come out of my shell. And then at the end of the summer, they said, you did really well. We will work around your college school schedule and you could stay and, and work here. So I took classes from nine to two and I worked two to nine every day. Um, that included Saturday and Sundays and it paid for my education. What was your family thinking back then? And I think there was a few quotes where they're like, you need to be this, you need to be that. What were they saying back then when you're like, I'm going to be a salesperson at a car dealership? Yeah. So Stephanie, it was not something that they wanted me to do. At the end, they were like, what do you mean? You're selling cars? And they really thought that that experience was going to end as soon as I graduated. They were like, oh, she's going to come to her senses. She's going to go to yep. law school. She's going to actually do something professional. That's why she went to college. And, you know, I'm an Asian female. So my entire life, my parents have always said, shame on you if you do something that basically ruins our name. Shame on you if you don't actually marry the right person. Shame on you if you don't actually become a doctor or a lawyer. So all these years of being trained as like, you must be something, not even for yourself, but for all of your ancestors and all of us out there. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so when I said, look, I'm going to stay in the auto industry because I got a job as a finance manager, you know, it paid six figures back then. This is mm -hmm. back in. Great. Um, yes. Getting right out of college at that time, getting that salary. That's good. Yes. So I sold cars back in 1989. And so mm -hmm. by 1992, I had a job making six figures. And so I broke the news to my parents. I said, I'm going to stay in the auto industry. I'm going to become a finance manager. I'll have some direct reports. I'll figure it out. But this is what we're going to do. And uh, they weren't happy with that decision. Yeah. Well, look at you now, though. <laughs> so at what point did you start evolving into kind of like marketing and kind of, you know, now I'm headed towards Constellation right now. Like, you know, at what point were you like, I want to do something a bit different for these dealerships? Yeah. So after actually working in retail for, I would say a good 12, 13 years, I had a baby and then I decided to go into automotive consulting. Mm -hmm. And so how the whole marketing piece came about was the last job prior to me actually launching Constellation Agency, they were a experiential marketing company. And mm -hmm. they had said to me, look, Diana, if there's another auto crisis, we're going to maybe go under. So we need to diversify our portfolio. So they asked me to go outside and bring in clients that were non-automotive. So I closed the Pfizer pharmaceutical project. They wanted to go global on social media. And at that point, that's when I basically had to hire strategists and everybody outside to join that project. And that's how the whole marketing thing came together. 
Got it. Okay. And then what was next? When did you decide to kind of make a jump into your own thing? Because to me, that's kind of scary, you know, working for others, having like a good paying salary, leading teams, having headcount to being like, I'm going to do my own thing now. Exactly. And so it wasn't intentional. What ended up happening is my husband got tired of me complaining coming home, you know, and <laughs> he would hear me go, you know, I could do it better and faster if they did this, this, and this. And so one day he said to me, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And he's like, you're 47, Diana, right? And it's not that it's an old age, but like you're towards the tail end of your career. You're not in the beginning and you're not even in the middle right now. You're getting towards the tail end of your career. So if you really want to launch something, you've got to jump now. And he just, he said, look, very few people can do things, you know, like this. But you can either do it in your 20s because you don't have the risk of supporting a family, or you can now do it closer in your late 40s or 50s because our kids are on high school. They don't need mm-hmm. you nearly as much. And that's when he said, I encourage you to do it. And that's when I made the leap and actually started Constellation. Oh, that's great. Go him. Okay. So what was the original concept of the agency? Is it like, what is it today? And maybe where were you even thinking it was headed back then? So. We came up with the name Constellation Agency. It really was supposed to be an agency because we decided that we weren't going to do digital marketing for the automotive space to start. And so everything was going well. And what ended up happening is we brought in too many clients right from the very beginning and couldn't scale it and realized Mm. the reason we couldn't scale it. If you look at social and how socials usually run, People run like three to five ads on social. They don't do what's called hyper-localized advertising. They don't go and actually really try to fine-tune the advertising. They make it very broad, Mm awareness-like. And what we felt like is the only way that customers can actually convert and have ROI is to make it hyper-localized based on the audiences and the targets that you're actually approaching. But in order to do that, you need to make a lot more ads. But when you try to scale that model, Mark Zuckerberg is a really smart guy, but he made it for the user experience. You can't Mm -hmm. do it on the back end. And so because of that, we decided to develop and make a technology that could do that and really scale the creative and the hyper-localization of the ads. And now full integrations with social, you can run now hundreds of ad units for a brand. And it's Mm -hmm. all different ad units based on the target audiences of the users. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, I even read one little blurb. I was like, do you know the demographics in this city are this? So I sure hope that you're actually presenting ads, you know, in that like language and not just English. And I'm like, duh, that seems obvious. But how many people are actually missing all the local variables that you can actually like tap into and showcase ads for? And then adding on the element of like actually making tons of them behind the scenes, like that's amazing. Like, how does it actually work though? How does it create so many different versions? Like, what does it look like behind the scenes? So you're going to laugh. The reason we invented it was not because we decided to ever license anything. What happened was Mm -hmm. we would have our campaign team and they would physically cry. (laughs) We laugh about it right now. And because we will do trainings for our new people that actually join our organization. And we'll say, look, We made this technology, we made these buttons because it made our campaign managers cry. And our campaign managers that are still here will start laughing hysterically. 
And they're like, she's not lying. It made us cry that we had to duplicate all the ads. It made us cry because we had to actually do hyperlocal and couldn't do it. It made us cry because we would stay up until one in the morning trying to actually make all the assets. We have interns that interned with us like two years ago and they came back and they said, oh my God, they said thing that actually would take a month for us to do takes five minutes to a button click now. Wow. And that that's it. And we invented it because we didn't want people to cry doing their yeah. jobs. I mean, that was really it. And then one day I ended up pitching one of our clients or potential clients. And they said they saw the technology and they said, I don't want the ads. I want that. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean? It has that. <laughs> and they said, that thing, that thing that you're clicking all the buttons on. And I said, oh, Alexia, our platform, our internal platform. Yeah, I want the license to your internal platform. And that's when we became from a managed service company to mm-hmm. a SaaS technology where it was self-serve. Which is amazing because that's what every company wants to be now as a SaaS company. But actually having the tools to make it, you know, make it a worthy one, I think many don't have. So kudos to you for actually even like pivoting to that and allowing people to buy kind of like your secret technology behind the scenes. So I'm sure that helped you scale in ways that maybe you wouldn't have been able to before, I'm assuming. Yes, but it, initially it was just a solving a problem for ourselves that existed for everybody else, but we were we didn't realize it. We thought we were, you know, just solving it for us and then finally realizing that everybody else had the same exact problems as an agency or yeah. even as a brand. Anybody that's actually buying media had the same issues. So, I mean, when thinking about this industry right now. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, we're worried and still are around like the cookie list future and tracking and pixels. And I want to hear your take on kind of how you're approaching that with your platform and your brands. Like, how are you advising them around this issue? Because I still feel like it's not fully solved. People still talk about it. I mean, there's so much confusion of what's actually happening. So it starts with the first thing, which is obviously if you have an app right now, just like Facebook, everybody's getting a message right now that's asking them, do you want tracking, right? And that's Mm -hmm. how they're posting it. It's a yes or no question. Apple's not explaining that question. They're basically just having it pop up and you have to answer yes or no. So Mm -hmm. I have a partner who's, you know, 20 years younger than I am. So he's like 32 years old. He answered the question, no. And he's a social media expert strategist who answered it, no. Yep. 96% of the users are now answering no to that question. What makes me crazy is that people are not being asked, do you want advertising? Because whether Mm -hmm. you actually say yes or no, you're still getting ads. That's not the question. The question is, do you want personalized ads? So people don't realize what does personalized advertising mean? That means that Facebook and social media platforms are discovery platforms. You don't mean to actually discover the item. It just comes, right? So if you Mm -hmm. are a fitness fanatic, you'll see apps about fitness. You'll see new equipment about fitness. But people actually love that. They don't realize how efficient their lives have been because of the fact that it's a discovery platform that knows you and will give you different preferences based on your choices of how you see yourself. That mm-hmm. is going away. That part is going away. So they're if saying you say no. Right. If you say no, that's the part that's actually going away. So yeah. what we're able to do now 
It's because what we realize that people are not necessarily answering this question correctly is we can make immersive assets where the ads go into full screen designs. And within the ad unit, you could put in products, color, trim, prices, everything that you want to know about that product. And you can click within the ad unit, all the choices without ever leaving the ad. And the reason that this is so powerful is because if the future is cookie-less, and if the future means that we will no longer be able to actually target people based on preferences, if you don't leave the ad unit and you make the preferences within the ad unit, you can now retarget people based on the choices that they made. Within that platform, right? Within that platform. So if you stay on Facebook and stay on Instagram and you're able to make all the choices within the ad units itself and you don't bounce out, then that data can now get captured. And that's really important because if the future is really cookie-less, that means website data is going away. And that is going to be huge for any marketers out there and any major brands that are actually doing this. So that's the first part. The second part is your CRM data is probably one of the most powerful data assets that you have. That can be downloaded and you can actually target probably a 70% match back to everybody on your CRM on social. Mm -hmm. And then the third part is you can also purchase data. And there are data aggregators like IHS, Oracle. Uh, These are all data providers. But what's important about their data is it's about purchases. It's not about websites. That's why they're able to actually have this data. You can actually purchase the data of the people that most likely would purchase your product because they purchased like products like yours in the past. And that is still available where it can be ingested in and actually match. And you could create lookalike audiences from those customers as well. Got it. I mean, those are Great workarounds for the first one around like creating an ad that, you know, helps you kind of like understand the preferences within the ad. How do you think about designing something? So it's not like overwhelming. I'm picturing like all these buttons where it's like, it's like this drop down and this one and this one. And I'd probably give up. So how do you guys go about creating a good user, you know, interface that people actually want to engage with so they get a good ad? So sometimes it could be too long, but I think the best way to do it is there's nobody that understands the brand better than the brand themselves. So we could actually take a guess and we can make all of these user experiences, which we think will work based on other you know, experiences that we've had with other consumer-related products or B2B products, and then we'll present it to the brand. And the brand usually already knows, but the best way to do this is to test a lot of different assets. That's the number one thing right? Like, can we make, instead of just three to five assets, can we make a hundred and hyper-localize them based on the audiences, make them in different languages? And Alexia will give you the power to do that and scale. So things that would take you, I don't know, like three months to actually make a hundred assets, Alexia can actually do within minutes time. So you could actually hyper-localize those audiences and be able to test out all of those and then see which ads perform the best based on the audiences that you're guessing at the time that should perform. And so the brand usually knows, but they give you a hint and then you actually put into action. And instead of targeting three audiences, 
we may target 100 the first three months and then start shutting off the ads that aren't performing and keep on the ads that do. And then we keep going from there. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Efficiency. I love it. Sounds great. (laughs) So when brands approach you guys, like what is maybe some of the key things that they're usually missing, especially when it comes to like hyper-local targeting? Like what are some things that you just keep seeing come up where it's like you guys are all not doing this and this is like, you know, basics here, everyone. Mostly every marketing company as well as the brands all have the same issue that come to us. They say they love their media team. They actually know that, you know, they can sell on Google. They can sell sell on OTT. They can sell on Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest. They already know all the channels that they want to launch in, or they've already tried all those channels. The biggest issue I hear all the time is they don't have the creative. They have the CRM which is they know who their customers are. They can make lookalike audiences of those customers. They already know that. And they know the end, which is which media companies that they can actually approach. But how do they mass produce the creative to test out all the audiences that they want to test out? How do they make engaging content, but they can test it in 50 different audiences so that they could see which audiences are going to perform the best? That's where Alexia comes in. So at the end, they don't have to change their agency. Keep your agency. Keep your CRM. Let's Mm -hmm. just mass scale your creative. Keep your creative side too. But let's mass scale that creative to make sure that we can hyper-localize it based on the preferences of the customers that you want to target. Got it. Yeah, I would definitely say that's the number one thing I've heard throughout interviews. And yeah, even thinking about marketers I've worked with, I'm like, oh, it'll take me a long time to create 20 options and get them up and running. So you probably see a lot of trends, but you're also having to kind of create the trends. I mean, people are coming to you, you're creating all these different versions of ads for them. How are you guys kind of staying ahead of the curve? Because I feel like every day it's like something different is happening in the world of ads. One second, it's, you know, you want really custom video content that's well-produced. Then it's UGC. Everyone wants UGC. Then it's like as little production as possible is working great. Like how are you guys kind of staying ahead and also creating trends when developing all these versions of ads? Yeah. So that's a great question, Stephanie. I think one of the things that I've learned in this experience is that you have to know who you are and what you're capable of. So user-generated content is something that many people love. It's not what we do, right? What we do is paid advertising. 
And if you can stay true to the core of what you're good at, you can be the best at just that, right? And so that's what we try to do is at the end, people want all different types of marketing, but I don't want to do all pieces of marketing because at the end, it becomes so watered down in terms of your skill sets that you don't perform well at anything. So people used to say, you know, I want to be a a one-stop shop for everything. Then you're not good at anything. You're a one-stop shop for everything. And you never become the subject matter expert of one thing. And that's something that we want to say is we are the best at what we do, which is creative content based on paid advertising. That's what we do. And we can show ROI on this because most of our brands, will fire us as well as any other agency if their products don't sell. And at the end, our job is to sell the product. It needs to sell. It needs to create ROI. And they need to analytically look at it and say, oh, Constellation Agency brought in $15.5 million of our revenue last year because they sold direct-to-consumer sales. That's what the brands are looking for. If you look at user-generated content, there is no ROI at the end. You don't know if it worked. It's like a question mark. Was it really Mm -hmm. that? The analytics are not always clear. So we try to stay true to what we know, what we believe in, and then really try to upscale that based on experiences of what we see. One of the things that we're seeing that's happening right now is if you look at Google and you look at Facebook, they're two of the oldest platforms that are pretty much out there that everybody does some sort of advertising on. Most of those platforms are all running in what's called a feeding system for creative. So Google came out first, and now you're able to actually have feeding systems of creative. Facebook launched the betas on it all last year. So now you could actually have creative that runs from a dynamically generated creative system that works off of feed. You don't generate the content one at a time anymore. And it's really important because we're doing the first integrations with Pinterest, Snapchat, and Twitter. The future will be where feeding systems are all going to generate the content automatically and dynamically. It's not going to be where we actually have to make one ad units at a time. And the reason that we're moving to this is those platforms are all smart learning, right? They, it's machine learning. They learn a lot more, but you always have to give it content. Like content is the biggest thing right now, but content doesn't work if you have to constantly manually produce them. So those platforms are all going into what's called a feed of all the creative. And the first integrations are also happening on Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest. And so that's why it really, really needs to actually go there. So it's like, McDonald's first came out and they landed all these different locations globally as well as nationally. Burger King came out and they actually matched where McDonald's were. And then Sonic came out. They did the sort of the same thing. So Facebook, Google, they actually started the trend and the trend will continue to go that direction, which is people will no longer have to make manual creative in the future. Okay, so you can tell me if this is the wrong way of thinking about it, but if all these platforms are essentially creating the ability to have dynamic content based off what you're looking at, and they're able to create all these ad units for you, wouldn't that kind of cut into 
you know, Alexia or like your guys' platform? Because that's kind of like what you guys are doing, right? Except at like a very local level, which maybe yeah. ad platforms don't have that. The other ad platforms haven't discovered it yet. They haven't okay. even done the integrations yet, right? So to be the cutting edge of anything, to be in the alpha and the beta, where basically these companies are now making the integration for you, Constellation mm-hmm. Agency, to start doing that and testing all the waters and all that, that is what's super exciting to me. To do things that's never been done and create a volume of content for brands, for users, and for everybody else that changes automatically and dynamically. And that's really where I want to stay and continue to actually learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's not, oh, should we do user-generated content? Should we do paid media? It's how do we actually make it more efficient for everybody overall so that we're all not getting bogged down by making individual pieces of creative in the future? Okay, so when thinking about all the platforms, there's always seems to be new ones popping up. Are there any experiments that you all are running right now that you're kind of like bullish on maybe a platform that's like not as, you know, mainstream as like a Facebook or Twitter? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the the platforms that I had just mentioned, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest are all ones that are a little bit behind, you know, Facebook as well as Google. So if you look mm-hmm. at Google, it's a really well-built out platform. Most demand side platforms already have Google and they can do the bidding right through their demand side platform. It's well-developed. It has a ton of analytics. Uh, it already has data that you can actually analyze to see, you know, row ads. You could see the performance. You could see, you know, the customers actually buy on these platforms. Facebook's the same thing. It's the most robust in terms of being able to look at the analytics and say, hey, they bought based on this exact event that happened on the exact hour within the exact minute. And you can actually see the ROI happening on those platforms. All of the other platforms, they are not as built out as those first two that I just mentioned, Facebook and Google. And what I find is that those platforms are becoming much better, stronger with the ability to actually integrate. And so I'm super excited because it opens up the opportunity to be able to do things on the other three platforms that's never been done before. And they're open to actually doing those integrations in the future, which is going to open up more advertisers to enter and to be able to try different types of units, but also get the analytics to see if actually it sold the product or not. I mean, so when I think about all the brands who've come on the show, the one thing I always hear is like, Facebook and Google, we don't even do that anymore. Like, I mean, and of course, some of them do, but a lot are like, that's too expensive. The rates have like, you know, skyrocketed and they're all trying to find just different avenues like direct mail or, you know, going back to TV. It feels like everyone's just trying to do something outside of Facebook and Google. Like, what are your thoughts around CPMs going so skyrocketing high, apparently, and brands kind of like scattering from the traditional platforms? I think that's great that you're even bringing this up because people don't realize that when the iOS 14 changes actually happened, there were a lot of brands that even reached us and said, I'm thinking about changing my agency right now because my ROAS is like dropping exponentially. I've had brands that called and said, I'm going to now go on Walmart and Amazon. The problem though is if you go there first without going to have a direct-to-consumer plan, 
You've dropped the prices to the lowest event that you can't go up from. Once you hit Amazon or Walmart, you can't have a higher price anywhere else because they're going to continue to go to Walmart. They're going to continue to go to Amazon. The problem is these are the rock bottom prices and you can't go up once you go there, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to decide as a brand, do you want to go wholesale? Because if you really want to go wholesale, then you can go there to those other channels. The problem is you lose all of your customer data. The data goes to Amazon, the data goes to Walmart, right? So that's one issue. The other issue is if they try everything else, like direct mail and there's email, I still think no matter what, it should be a multi-channel approach. Just as you do paid media, you should reapproach on email and direct mail as well. It should be a comprehensive marketing plan. Some of our brands, which I think is genius, they say, Diana, you guys go after new customers. And my job is to go after the reoccurring subscription model. We're going to actually do it through email and direct mail. Because once you get them in, they're now in our email and direct mail cycle. And we can actually get the subscription going on our second, third, fourth, fifth, 18th purchase there, right? And I think that's a smart strategy to have a agency do the upfront, which is get me the new customers and then have your marketing teams reapproach them with all of the other channels. But I think it's a combination effort of actually working together to come up with a comprehensive strategy between your current marketing teams the creative team that's actually making the creative or using platforms like Alexia to generate creative. Great. So I want to pivot a bit to something we were talking about before we started recording, and it was around the automotive industry. I thought it was very fascinating. So on the show, we've talked a lot about supply chain issues. It's always, you know, very much coming from a brand perspective, um, you know, or a niche, definitely not like an entire industry. So I want to hear your perspective around what is going on in the automotive industry right now. Yes. So in automotive, and people are not really talking about this much because I think that there's a lot of brands that are very afraid. We've gone through a chip shortage. And what that means is uh, back in COVID, the automakers were not selling vehicles at the very beginning of COVID. And many of the plants were shutting down. So they had told the chip makers, we don't need these chips. And so the chip makers were super happy because people were staying home and they were gaming and they're doing a lot of electronics during that time. Because of that, the chip makers were producing more and more chips. Well, the auto market came back and basically said, oh, we need those chips now for the vehicles. Unfortunately, there's not enough chips. There's not enough chip makers. It takes five years to actually scale chips if you are a new chip maker, semiconductor chips. And so at this point, there's a lack of chips all of the vehicles that are coming out require more and more chips. So even electric vehicles, because there's so much technology inside the vehicle, require more and more chips, which now has created a huge issue. What is that issue? You have all of these leases that are coming due. And many of these people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, oh my gosh, my lease is coming due. But you can't get a car. Some of the biggest Honda stores globally around the world where they had 1,500 new car inventory is now down to 18 cars in stock. 18 cars. Wild. So they have millions of leases that are all coming due within the next one year. So customers need to pre-order their vehicles now, even six months ahead, knowing that their leases 
are ending. And if they don't do that, they're going to end up going to the dealership and the dealership's going to say, oh, guess what? I'm going to actually sell it for $20,000 over sticker price. And they're able to get it right now. I've seen this back in the 80s. I have not seen it since then. It's oversaturated. You've got all these leases coming in. These people need vehicles. And they also don't know that they can extend their lease for a minimum of six months right now. If they can pre-think about this and actually put in the order, they're going to get the best price for it because now they could say, oh, at least at this point, if I pre-order it, maybe I'll just pay sticker price for it or maybe a little bit under sticker. But if you're trying to get a car at the very last minute, it's unfortunate, but it's right now a dealership market. Do you see any hope on the horizon right now? Or is this kind of like going to be how it is for the next couple of years? I think it's going to be bad all of 2022. And I think that the automakers won't announce it because they are publicly traded companies. Their stocks will sink if they announce the fact that they're going to produce a quarter of the vehicles that are out there right now. The automakers are able to do two things because think about it. How did they even stay afloat when they're actually producing a quarter of the vehicles now that they used to produce two years ago? They're able to stay afloat because they've cut all of the incentive on vehicles. You don't see incentives. They don't have to come out with 0.9%, you know, $299 for this Honda Accord. They don't have to do any of that. So they don't have to advertise because they have no supply of these vehicles. But the messaging should be that if consumers want to protect themselves, they need to, one, figure out if they need to extend their lease and they can extend it up to six months. They can sell their lease. People don't realize you can sell your lease and make money on your lease right now. But in order to do that, you got to have a plan B, which is what car are you going to drive in the future and make that pre-order? And people are just not talking about it because they're afraid that their stocks are going to drop. They're afraid the manufacturers currently, they don't want to do the pre-orders because they know that they can't fulfill the orders. So many of these consumers also don't realize that if they do a pre-order and the dealer says, oh, it's going to come in February, it may not come in February. And so this is a big, big, big problem. Ford had just announced last week that they're going to indefinitely extend their leases. Wow. Because they're afraid that you're going to defect. So if you're in a Ford right now, they're afraid that you're going to buy a Toyota or a Honda or a Subaru or Mazda mm-hmm. uh, because they can't get you the vehicle. So they're saying you can stay in your lease indefinitely right now. That's how desperate people are becoming with this problem. But it's important for the consumers to know this and protect themselves and try to still get the best deal that they can. And it's really thinking about what they want to drive. What are they currently in? Do they want to sell their vehicle? How do they time it so they can sell their vehicle and pre-order and make sure that they can actually offset this and have a vehicle to drive? Because right now there's no loaners. Dealerships don't have loaners. Rental cars don't have loaners. Yeah, rental car issues right now. Every time I try and rent a car, I'm like, what is going on? Exactly. They have nothing. That's why. I mean, so to me, this is like a big boom for the used car market though. Because I mean, we've had a couple different platforms come on. some of our different podcasts that we have, and they're all around, you know, buying and selling used cars and finding the people easily, making it all, you know, a very seamless experience. How, I mean, to me, that's like great. Like if you're okay with a used car, there probably is a lot of them, don't you think? Who needs a new car if there's a bunch of used ones? I think that used cars is something that's booming right now because of the fact that the new car market has collapsed. However, Mm -hmm. 
it's the same used vehicles also in circulation as well. So what my fear is, all these leases that are coming due are now going to the used car market. At some point, those used cars are going to disappear as well. Because think about it, if the chip shortage affects new vehicles and they don't produce it, there's going to be fewer used vehicles in the end. And if you really think through this process, I don't really know what's going to happen with automotive because in a lot of ways, the dealerships seem super happy right now because they can mark up the car for whatever price that they want. It is a frenzy. And at the end, they're winning. However, how is this going to look a year or two from now when the used car market also dries up because there's not enough coming in of leases? And then what happens to fixed operations? So fixed operations is service. Well, uh, look at the maintenance, look at the warranty and the repairs. What happens to that market if there's going to be a third of the vehicles on the ground of what actually is there right now? So I Mm -hmm. feel like this is going to cycle out for the next two to three years. And it's a mess. Okay, so I wanna shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Diana? Yes. (laughs) Okay, first thing, what is the best piece of business advice you ever received? Ask for more. So people are always afraid to ask for more because they think most people are fear-driven. They already think Mm -hmm. that all these things are gonna happen. So they immediately don't ask for more. And I've always told everybody, there's nothing wrong with asking for more. And at the end, you can always come down. You can't go up once you actually ask, right? And so that's my biggest advice to most people is like, who cares if they you know, won't do business with you? You have nothing anyway. Just take the risk and ask for more. I love that. What is one thing you don't understand today that you wish you did? The biggest thing is I wish that I had the confidence that I have now in my 50s that I had back in my 20s and 30s. I think a lot of times when you're super young, you're so worried about what other people may think about you. But I think the biggest lesson to myself is it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters more about what I think about myself. And to stay true to that is probably one of the most uh, biggest lessons that I've learned in my life um, is I have to stay true to who I am as a person and be okay with it. What are three tools that you can't live without? My first tool is probably my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) It's become a part of my body because I realized that so much of the functioning that I have is obviously with my cell phone. My computer, obviously, because I'm always on my laptop doing the work that I need to do. And then I guess the last thing that I can't live without could be, let's see, my coffee maker. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. And mainly because I have to have a good cup of coffee early in the morning just to actually just even jumpstart and get started. Yes, I agree. All right. And then the last one, would be, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh my gosh, there's been so many incredible things. Um, I think the biggest thing, and I know that this is probably going to be, you know, it's heartfelt for me. So I went through a divorce 10 plus years ago. And, you know, when you go through 
very traumatic events in your life, you realize who's actually going to be there for you and who's not. So I remember I called a, a man, his name was Ron Chatwin, and I had done some projects with him in the past. And I said, I'm pretty desperate right now. And at the time going through the divorce, I was married to a physician who was actually bringing in a lot of income. And I was a consultant at the time. And I needed as many jobs as possible because I realized that I needed to support myself and support my, my son. And so I called him and I said, Ron, can you help me out? Can you help me get on some projects? And a lot of people are usually there and say, oh, yeah, I can help you. I can do things for you. But this man actually got me on projects that I desperately needed, got me a job with BMW of America, with Volkswagen of America. And wow. he, yeah, and recently he passed away. So it makes me cry. But I have to say that was one of the amazing gifts that anybody could have ever done for me was to restart my career when after I had my child and going through a very horrific um, event was there to step in and say, yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to make the networks happen for you. I'm going to connect you. Love that story. I think, yeah, it's always fun to hear about things like that, uh, just because I think there's so many moments in people's lives where they can point to one person who really did kind of change the course of you know their life, their business. I know I've had moments like that when the company wasn't doing well. And I went to one of our, our clients. I said, I need a year-long contract. I needed to get a loan. Here's what's happening. Like, if I don't get this, the company might not be here. And they were like, oh, why didn't you just tell me? Yes, of course. And it's like that one moment in history literally changed the whole course of the company and my life. And it's fun hearing about stories like that from others. And yeah, just how people can really make a difference by kind of opening up their network or saying yes to something that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And I think it's really important to realize that most people want to help you, but we're yeah. afraid to ask for more. Yeah. Right. And so we yeah. hold back. We're like, I shouldn't ask. I shouldn't ask. And then we limit our own opportunities. So those, mm -hmm. those are the learnings that I've had. Yeah. Cool. Well, Diana, this has been such a fun interview. I've really loved having you on for every moment of it. For now, where can people find out more about you and Constellation Agency? Thank you so much, Stephanie. Please, I, if anybody wants to learn more about Constellation, come on www.constellationagency.com. Thanks so much, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.